the information, suggestions, and ideas of the podcaster or any other non-accredited, unqualified guests are exactly that, opinions, and do not constitute professional advice, counsel, or prescriptive recommendations for our listening audience. If you need help, seek professional help and do it today. Welcome to the Unlimited Worth Podcast. We are normalizing the narrative for men who have healed from their childhood trauma by sharing stories of happiness, success, and love. I'm on a mission to encourage millions of men and the families who love them get the support and healing they need so they can realize their unlimited worth. Ryan Gottfriedson, thank you so much for joining us today. It's good to have you with us. I'm really honored to be here. And I think that given the work that you do, a lot of times I think when I'm coming on to a podcast, I'm thinking, oh, I just want to have a fun conversation. And not that that's a bad thing, but what I'm looking forward to with our conversation, Mike, is I don't necessarily care to have a fun conversation, but I think what we'll have is a meaningful conversation. I would agree. And, you know, sometimes the subject matter is a little heavy, but anyone who knows me knows that I don't take life too seriously, but I'm pretty darn serious about how I live my life. So, you know, that balance, I think, is something we'll find. Ryan, I'll tell people a little bit about yourself. Ryan Gottfredson. It's not Gottfredson. Like you got it. Yeah, version, in fact, I right? think I get it wrong half the time. So. That's awesome. You're a PhD and a cutting edge leadership development author, researcher, and consultant. You help organizations vertically develop their leaders, primarily through a focus on mindsets and you know, you've been in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, you're a best-selling author of a book called Success Mindsets, The Key to Unlocking Greater Success in Your Life, Work, and Leadership. And you're also, and you and I just talked about that wonderful moment when you finish, you know, you're the author of an upcoming book, The Elevated Leader, taking that to another step by leveling up your leadership through vertical development. You're a leadership professor at the College of Business and economics at California State University, Fullerton. So thank you again for being here. And I'd like to remind you, Ryan, as I do with everyone, while public, you're also in a safe space. And you're welcome to share any details that pertain to your life. And we always talk about trauma of some sort in here. And so you can help share as much as you feel comfortable. It's my cosmic ripple to get this information out there. Uh, my commitment to other men is to help nudge them you know, and reassure them that they can find the help they need if we can just open this conversation because they can't really keep going. And this is something I hope you can help us with because we can't keep going thinking we can fix ourselves. I'm there with you. I think we're on the same page. Absolutely. And great thing about being, I don't know, at this age, my ripe old age is I just get to straight to it. And so, you know, there's no use talking about superficial things when we can get down to things that matter. So, Ryan, maybe help me understand a little bit about, I always ask people their trauma story, but maybe the trauma story or what you experience with men and leaders that you're speaking to or interviewing all the time. Yeah, great question. I'm happy to really dive into all of that. Let me actually introduce you to a CEO that I'm currently working with. This CEO, when I, in my first coaching call with him, I said, what are you doing that is preventing you from being the leader that you want to be? And he said to me, well, I shut down the ideas of others. And I said, oh, th this is interesting. Like it's interesting on two parts is one is I'm actually glad that you recognize this because there's a lot of leaders who do this and don't recognize it. But then I asked him, why do you shut down the ideas of others? You seem to know that this isn't really the best thing. And he said, 
I wish I could tell you. I, I don't know. Huh. Which says this is an instinctual reaction, right? And it, it's connected to his body's nervous system. Like it's when he gets in certain positions and he gets anxious, he can't help it but to shut others down. And so we dove into this. What are these situations? And what we discovered is that when ideas come forward from his subordinates, he shuts them down because he's got a fear. And the fear is, is that if their ideas get accepted, then they will be seen as smart and he will be seen as stupid for not having come up with those ideas in the first place. Wow. And what is going on here? And again, I just kind of want to make that point is this is a good person who has very good intentions, but he's got an internal operating system that is working against his intentions. And the reality is, is that what is going on beneath the surface and what has occurred in the past to make his nervous system this way is trauma. And that could mean a thousand different things, but there's something going on there that is holding him back. These fears and these insecurities are always rooted in some form of past trauma. I believe it's really important. You know, you have this concept of internal operating system and you talk about that quite a bit. When you consider that the first impulse of people from the outside looking in would say, well, he looks smart because he hired them. You know, he should own that. You know, he doesn't look dumb. So there's this immediate reflexive action. Well, you're the leader. You did a good job hiring them. So good for you. Pat on your back, right? Um, yeah. And it dismisses the fact that he has this sense of not being smart enough. Even though he hired well, these people make him look dumb. I don't think he has a choice, right? We don't, we don't have a choice sometimes because our iOS, if you will, is, is directing the traffic. Tell us how that kind of comes to play. You're exactly right. It's operating below the surface for most people. It's below our conscious awareness. And that's, to me, my job as somebody who helps leaders to develop is my job is to bring this to their conscious awareness. He's doing something that feels good to him. He's helping preserve his competence amongst his peers, mm, yeah. right? That feels good to him, but he also isn't as sensitive as he needs to be about the negative repercussions of those things that feel good to him, right? In fact, let me give you another example. I, I had a coaching call with the CEO yesterday, and he said that one of the things that he commonly does is he gets stuck in the weeds, and he's playing in the urgent day-to-day -day needs and he's not operating at this higher strategic level. And we dove into why this was and it all came down to, I have a fear of letting other people down and disappointing them. Hmm. Because if I disappoint them, then I won't be valued by them. And that makes complete sense. But because he's holding on so tightly to the need to please everybody, it's actually inhibiting his ability to operate at the level he really needs to operate at as a CEO. And again, that need to please everybody is rooted in some form of past trauma. So when we begin to investigate these things, often we are people who have experienced something and it gives us particular insight to either a mechanism of it or the journey. And so what I'd ask you, Ryan, is if you're willing to share a little bit about, you know, how this topic, the idea that there are underlying forces at work um, yeah. based on traumas that we experience in life. What is, what's your experience that helped connect you to this, this topic and this theme and, you know, your life's work right now? Let me take you down a roadmap. I first started focusing on, well, I did my dissertation at Indiana University. And it was on leadership. I reviewed the last 70 years of leadership research. And what I found is that most of this 
essentially asks one question, and that is, what do leaders need to do to be effective? Mm. And to me, I thought that was a good question. It's led to some really good answers, but it also feels really short-sighted because I think about leadership as not just doing the right things, but about being a certain type of person. And so when I joined Cal State Fullerton, I started to do research on how do we tap into the being element of leadership and everything led me to mindsets. Now, a lot of people think about mindsets as being our attitude towards something. Right. But as I dove in and I started to understand mindsets is mindsets are actually neural connections in our brain that are the most foundational aspects for why we do what we do. Because the information we take in, how we interpret it, impacts how we think about it, how we learn, and how we behave. So let me give you just a quick example. How would you say most people respond to constructive criticism? Uh, Defensively. (laughs) They get defensively, right? So that says that when constructive criticism comes towards them, they make meaning of it as an attack. And therefore, they get defensive. And that makes complete sense to get defensive if we see it as an attack. But that isn't the only way we can make meaning of constructive criticism, right? We can make meaning of constructive criticism that it's an opportunity to learn and grow and improve ourselves. And if we make meaning of it in that way, we will embrace it. So how we see our world shapes how we think, how we learn, and how we behave. And this is all, again, driven by our mindsets, these specific neural connections in our mind. And as I started to get into the neuroscience behind mindsets, then I started to come across research that is all about how trauma impacts these mindset or encoding neural connections. And that to me was a huge revelation is our mindsets are the most foundational things of how we operate. They, for most people, reside below the level of our consciousness and they are directly impacted by past trauma. The more trauma somebody has had in their life, the more self-protective their mindsets become. It's our body's natural reaction. And I think all of us have trauma to a certain degree, but what we're learning is the more that we can heal from trauma, what we're doing is we're actually healing these neural connections in our mind so that we can operate less in a self-protective fashion and more in a way that allows us to add a greater value to the world around us. How did this impact your life? How did you make that personal connection? I think I've read over the last three years, I don't know, 20 plus books on trauma. There's several of these books that stand out to me. One of them in particular, I think it's the best treatise on trauma out there, uh, at least what I've read, is the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Incredible book. And at the end of this book, he reviews the research behind various trauma therapy modalities. And there was one modality that he talked about or wrote about that I had never heard of before. And he says, research is finding aside from, you know, certain hallucinogenic drugs, (laughs) it's the most effective form of addressing trauma. And and this form of trauma is, is called EMDR, eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. And this is the first time I'd ever heard of it. And I'm, I'm reading about it. I'm like, this is absolutely fascinating. I want to try it out for myself. But mm-hmm. I'll also say at the time, I didn't think that I had trauma in my background. But I still reached out to a trauma therapist and I asked her, can I try this out? And she said, and I was like, but I don't know if I have any <laughs> trauma. But she said, well, even if you don't, I th- still think it could help you get into a better mental and and emotional place for you to operate more effectively in your professional and personal lives. And so I said, yeah, let's try it out. Let's see how it goes. So we started engaging in it. 
And very quickly, I discovered through this process of EMDR that I had trauma in my background that I was not aware of. Like I, I looked at my upbringing, like my parents stayed married. I grew up playing basketball. My parents were at every basketball game I ever played pretty much. Um, they were always there for me physically. Mm-hmm. But what I learned going through trauma, there's two particular instances in my upbringing that we discovered through this EMDR that sent a signal to me that I was alone emotional. That effectively what I've now discovered is I, I was a child who was neglected. Mm. And what research has found is that children who experience neglect, they have as much emotional issues moving into adulthood as much, if not more than children who are physically abused. Mm. And so it's been a huge eye-opening experience to discover I've got trauma that I didn't know. And now over a year and a half of of working with my therapist, I can now clearly see the fingerprints of that past trauma on how I've lived my life up until now. As a child, as somebody who was kind of left alone emotionally, it was up to me to meet my emotional needs. That's helped me in some ways, but it's hurt me in others. I'm an incredibly independent person, but I'm also have a hard time when I've come to realize trusting others. For sure. Because I've never had anybody that I felt like I could trust in my upbringing mm-hmm. in terms of meeting my needs. I, I didn't expect to find it, but it's there. And I feel like having found it, I've been able to work through it and I'll continue to work through it. And I feel like the last year and a half of, of doing therapy, I have grown and developed as a person more than maybe the 15 years prior to that, or, or even more than that. I don't know. Like it's just been an incredible journey. It's curious to me, you know, the dynamic of going through a process, like you willingly went into a process and said, I'm not sure what you're going to find or we're going to find. And with a professional, they find some things. In some ways, the, the media and the sensationalization of, you know, mental illness or mental trauma has a lot of leaders, because we work with leaders, hesitant to take that step because they're worried that uh, maybe some things will be contrived or that the thing that they never thought existed, oh my God, my I can't realize my real history. All of those realizations often keep people, and in particular successful leadership-oriented people, because they really feel a sense of preservation of reputation and, and risk management yeah. every moment of every day. It sometimes prevents them from taking that step. How, how do you see, or what is your experience in encouraging that step or uh, witnessing how that happened? I mean, for you, you were investigating. It was an investigative thing, but for others, it may not be. I think that one of the things that I always, I will always encourage people to do is to just learn about trauma and the negative impacts that it can have on us. The more that we become trauma informed, I think the much more willing we are to embrace methods of helping us to heal ourselves. And now you don't always need a therapist, but I think it sure is helpful to have one for sure. And so I think one of the first steps is just learning about trauma. And that's one of the things I'm excited about my upcoming book. It's The Elevated Leader. And there's nothing on the cover that says trauma. (laughs) But the main message of the book is to the degree to which you heal your mind, your body, and your heart is the degree to which you will be a more positive influence in the world around you. And we definitely made that connection to trauma, but it's it's not something I lead with, maybe for some of those reasons. Well, and I've even encountered that, and that is everyone in the room who shows up doesn't want to look around and think that everyone else is in a trauma situation 
because there's a sense of stigma or discomfort. And so if they're in the room for a different reason, but that's the co- topic of conversation anyways, you know, that bait and switch may be an appropriate one, I think. I don't want to do a spoiler, but I'm going to share one item that stuck out for me that kind of started a good conversation running, but it's like deeper in some of your teachings and some of your blogs. And that is, uh, you've made the statement that all bad leadership is trauma related. And if you were to say, I'm a leader and I'm leading a team and Ryan Goffertson is the CEO of company XYZ, how would your trauma relate to that leadership position? And then how do you maybe help give some color to that comment, that statement? Here's some things that we know about leadership. The majority of leaders are not as effective as we want them to be. 60% of employees state that their direct leader damages their (laughs) self-esteem. Like, I don't think any leader or manager wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to, I'm going to hurt my employees' self-esteem today, but that happens on a regular basis. And why does that happen? Well, it's because they are fulfilling a need for them and they are insensitive to the needs of those around them. In fact, I think maybe what might be helpful to kind of help explain this. And I talk about this in my book is, do you care if I kind of just go through, I have, I call them the four dominoes of trauma. Love it. Go ahead. And, and we'll connect it to emotional intelligence because that's effectively what we're talking about. Absolutely. Would that be okay? Yeah, no question. Okay. So when someone experiences trauma, the first domino that falls neurologically is what's called disintegration. When disintegration occurs, what is going on is our mind is disconnecting from our body. Like we've got a, we've got a central nervous system that goes mind to body and we disconnect that. We oftentimes call this numbing, and it's a form of self-protection when the trauma occurs because it helps us to survive that moment. Mm. But what we've learned is that that disconnection lingers over time until it is treated and healed. So when people, and this is, I've learned this working with leaders, but when people have, and even myself, when people have, have experienced disintegration, they have a hard time connecting with their body. Right. So I would say for, I don't know, 10% of my coaching calls with executives, we get to a point in the conversation and it comes up naturally, but I say to them, what fear is going on here? And 10% of these people, well, they'll kind of stiffen up a little bit and they say, I don't have any fears. I'm not driven by fear. Mm. And immediately I'm kind of scratching my head. Well, do you not have fears or are you unwilling to connect with your fears? And people who are unwilling to connect with their fears are people who have experienced disintegration. Our mind and our body are disintegrated, limits our self-awareness and our ability to metacognate. And so when we think about emotional intelligence, emotional intelligence is two factors, our ability to recognize the emotions within us and navigate those effectively. And then the second factor is recognizing the emotions of others and navigating those effectively. Mm -hmm. So disintegration negatively impacts our ability to be self-aware and to control our emotions. So that's the first domino. The second domino is what we call dissociation. Dissociation means, or what we need to know to understand this is that there's three major brain regions in our mind. There's our reptilian, our mammalian, and our human brain. When the neural connections are working effectively, then all three of these brain regions work together as a team. 
But when we experience trauma, what ends up happening is our mind gets dissociated where our reptilian and our mammalian brains become hypersensitive and our human brain, our state of cognition has a difficult time regulating the reptilian and mammalian brains. So what this means is effectively, it's like we're riding a horse that is really skittish. A lot of the time we could do well, but if even like the wrong colored tree comes up around the corner, then all of a sudden that horse gets spooked and it runs off and there's nothing that the rider can do to control it. Right. So that's what's commonly the case. And a couple of other ways to think about this. So the third domino is then we have a shrinking of our window of tolerance. And our fourth domino is we misencode the world around us. We see safe things as being dangerous like constructive criticism, for example, that's a safe thing. Oftentimes we interpret it as being dangerous and we see dangerous things as being safe. Like for example, using drugs, that's a dangerous thing that we could see as safe. And when we experience dissociation, narrow window of tolerance and misencoding, then what is going on is we have a hard time being sensitive to the needs around us. We are overly sensitive to our needs and we are less sensitive to the needs of others. So The combination of all this is that when people experience trauma and experience disintegration, dissociation, narrow window of tolerance, and misencoding, effectively, they've got reduced emotional intelligence. And if we ever want to elevate in our emotional intelligence, we don't learn it on how, here are the things that you need to do to become more emotionally intelligent. We've actually got to heal these different aspects of our nervous system. And to the degree to which we do, then we will elevate in our emotional intelligence. That, that's, that makes sense to you? It makes a lot of sense. And when you think about perceiving threats and perceiving dangers incorrectly and perceiving safety incorrectly, it's just like when, when you're speaking. One of the biggest lessons of speaking is never approach the stage with your hands behind your back. Because if you have your hands behind your back, some people feel comfortable with just kind of walking with their hands. But the audience immediately has this flight response or fright because they're worried that they don't know what's behind your back. And it's immediate. And then we've been ingrained that if it's hidden and someone's intentions are hidden, we could be in danger. And the challenge, of course, is somehow, uh, and this was true for me, is my my comfort was when I could see the danger. So you may hold nothing and you may have great intentions behind your back. But if you show me the knife, at least I know what I'm dealing with. And that is maybe a protectionism, protectionist type uh, maneuver that will save me. But in normal society, that doesn't work because that person with the knife is going to do something wild at some point and ruin whatever it is that you're doing, either injure you or injure something else that affects you. I think it's really interesting to bring out the fact that if we don't deal with the underlying wiring, if you will, uh, we can't fix that. And we'll always lean on it again and again and again, and we won't do it consciously. And so that's what I love about just helping when we help people understand trauma and its impact on our body's nervous system then it makes sense like, oh, this is what we need to focus on and heal because it's getting at the most foundational aspects about who we are. Most personal and leadership development efforts focus up at a higher level on our behaviors. We kind of say, I need to get you as you know, to go back to the CEO, I need you to get you to listen better to the ideas of others and bring them forward. I'm going to send you to a training that you're going to go to, and it's all about improving your listening skills. Now, that's a form of development that's called horizontal development. This is a typical form of development. It's just adding new knowledge and skills. 
And I think that will be incrementally helpful. But if we continue to neglect the trauma that is going on below the surface and and the impact that it's had on the body's nervous system, that training or workshop that they go to, it's not going to be transformationally helpful. It will never be that way. If we ever want to help people or leaders transform, we've got to go get to a deeper level that resides below our behaviors, even below our thinking. It's to that mindset or neurological level. Can we think of it like, okay, put it in the basketball context. You know, if you're running the wrong route and you're in the wrong position and you're trying to get a shot off that is almost always going to miss because you're always in the wrong position for what you can hit. I guess that's the key. You could have the perfect, you could rehearse the perfect shot stationary all day long and drain every three pointer. But if your route puts you in slightly different position all the time, whether you like it or not, and that's the play, you're going to miss that shot by, you know, a centimeter. Is that, you know, is is that a good context? Is that a metaphor that works on the basketball? Yeah, I think so. Right. So part of what you're saying is I'll even switch the metaphor just a little bit. Like we can horizontal development is adding tools onto our tool belt. And we can, we're prone to say the more tools, the better. That's awesome. But what about the person and their capabilities of using those tools? We could send a leader to go to how to listen more effectively. And that adds a tool in the tool belt. But if that leader doesn't even know how to use that tool, that tool is not compatible with their internal operating system. They'll never use it. And even to say it a slightly different way is we can add an app onto an iPad and that will broaden the iPad's functionality, but it won't improve how effectively that iPad operates. When we focus on horizontal development, we're adding apps or tools onto ourselves. When we focus on vertical development, which is ultimately healing from our past trauma, then we're getting at the internal operating system. Which is the key to vertical development. Correct. Yes. Right. Have you done any work on types of trauma, duration of trauma? Like is is there a chipping away effect? Is there a sudden effect? Uh, you know, have you had any work and done any work on how certain applications of trauma throughout life apply to the other side of this, the outcome? Yeah, I haven't done any primary research, but I'm surely familiar with with secondary research. And I think that this is a really important distinction. Maybe we even should have brought this up sooner. At least for me, the way that I define trauma is trauma is not necessarily an event or something that occurs to us. Trauma is our body's reaction to something that occurs to us. For example, for one person, let's just say they, they were in a car accident. That could be really traumatic for somebody in the sense that it it causes them to disintegrate and disassociate. For another person, they could go through that same accident and they won't disintegrate and they won't dissociate. Thus, it's the same thing, but for one person, it was traumatic. For the other person, it wasn't. So to me, trauma is not about the experience we go through. It's our body's reactions to the things that we go through. When we experience disintegration and or dissociation, that means that we've experienced trauma. That's interesting because that all the buzzword of resilience, you know, starts to come into play when we have that, when we talk about that, because there's Mm -hmm. a degree of resilience that one builds up. You know, I don't think all trauma is bad because it's just like building calluses as you build up. Calluses don't make you rough and hard and hardened to the world, they protect you so you can participate in the world, you know? And there's a degree of resilience. Now, having experienced childhood abuse that I didn't have coming and was rather intrusive in life and abusive, that was one of those moments where I didn't see it coming and there's no way I could have had a resilience built up to that. 
had that continued for years and years, I just can't imagine the damage or the trauma effect that occurs. So maybe how, how does resilience layer into that? And can you build positive resilience onto this journey of dealing with the trauma, the underlying trauma, so that in the future you're better off for it? I think it's helpful to understand that there's three kind of classifications, things that can happen to us that can impact our integration and our kind of association in our mind. Okay. So one is, and oftentimes this is labeled as big T trauma, but there's, it's not a box that has clear cut edges, <laughs> but big T trauma are almost like single events that are really big that impact us. So it could be a car crash. It could be being abused once. Then there's what they would call little T traumas. These are events that aren't just one instance. It's long-term duration of having to operate in a place of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So for example, if you've got a parent that's bipolar, you don't know every day what parent you're going to get. And, and that over time is an elevated level of stress that one is living under. And that impacts the integration of their mind and their association of their mind to the body and association within their mind. So that's something you can't control and is uncertain. That's the little T trauma. The third category is really interesting. It's prenatal trauma. It's essentially things that occur to an infant while in the womb of the mother. That could be the the mother is abused. That could even be the mother is really anxious about being a mother. It could be the mother takes drugs. All three of these things are kind of large categories that have been proven to commonly impact one's body's nervous system. Now, to the degree to which they do impact our nervous system, which is now getting to the point of resilience, is based upon a wide variety of factors. There's elements about themselves. There's elements about the environment they operate within. Do they have a close relationship with somebody else? They're genetically, they've found certain genes that predispose people to just not be impacted as much as others. So there's a wide variety of factors. There's a book called The Deepest Well. Have you heard of the book, The Deepest Well, Mike? I've heard of it. Yeah. Okay. So it's written by Nadine Burke Harris, and she's also got a great TED talk on it. She focuses more on childhood trauma than adult trauma, but all are important to talk about. And she has a great story in her book about when she was in medical school. So she's a doctor. And when she was in medical school, they were doing part of the research lab she was a part of. They were injecting tadpoles that are set to turn into toads. They were injecting tadpoles with a certain hormone. Hmm. They were using it to see how this affected their ability to turn from a tadpole into a toad. And the hormone injection essentially was designed to stimulate stress. What they decided to do is let's get rid of this injection, but let's actually do this. Let's put a whole bunch of tadpoles into the same container. And what's going on here is there's there's more tadpoles there than what water is available for Mm. them. So this is a really stressful condition where they have a need and there's limited resources. And what they found is that if the tadpoles were developed beyond a certain point, this restrictive condition help them to metamorphosize into a toad more quickly. If they were before a certain stage in their development, it killed all of them. Wow. Part of you know the story that and this is another factor is not just what occurs, but when it occurs in our life. 
if something that occurs to us at age two could be much more significant than when it occurs to us at age five, just given kind of our own personal stage of development. In fact, what research has found is that, and I think this is in, in The Body Keeps the Score, is Bessel van der Kolk talks about how if you have two options, one option is a baby has a traumatic first two months, but the next 12 years are very secure. So that's option one. Option two is the first two months are really secure and the next 12 years are really chaotic. The person who ends up generally ends up more kind of healthy mentally, emotionally is the one who is more secure in the first two months. There's a developmental window within that two months that is really significant. It's an absolutely huge um, connection, bonding need that happens. Yeah. What I enjoy, often the conversations I have are around with men who had that moment where it was insurmountable pressure, pushed them to a decision to get help or seek solutions or, you know, choose to heal instead of all the chaos, everything else that they may have had in the life before. One of the messages that I get repeatedly from reading your literature and looking at, you know, in, in our conversations is you're taking a proactive, which is lovely because that's what I maybe wished I wished may have happened, is that proactive moment where, yeah, you're not really connecting your trauma with the negative outcomes. The stress isn't the breaking point or your bottom, rock bottom for some, but you're saying if you really want to be better as a leader in particular, then this is one of those key elements fundamentally that you must investigate and you must dig into to find tools, sorry, no no tools, uh, strategies to build so you can vertically develop instead of have horizontal development. I love that, that that's something that you're doing. Help me understand that then. And I often ask people, what would you tell yourself or that person who was traumatized? And, you know, they're dealing with this now. In your context, often people may or may not have that connection. And I certainly didn't for most of my life. I didn't connect what I was doing to what had happened to me. Yeah. Right. I didn't make that connection. So how do you bring that to the forefront and open up the conversation so men in particular, leaders who are men, kind of start to make their own connection and say, listen, this needs to be dealt with. Well, the way that I approach a conversation is, again, I don't necessarily start with the topic of trauma, although I'm really happy to. Uh, I usually start by, they kind of ask me, well, what do you do? And I say, well, I help leaders vertically develop. And usually the response that I get, I almost see their ears perk up like, oh, what's vertical development? And, and as we dive into this, um, one of the things that I will generally present, and we haven't covered this yet, is the research behind vertical development stems from the field of developmental psychology. And what developmental psychology has found is that as children develop from infancy to adulthood, they go through a number of different stages and they do so rather automatically. It's essentially a function of age. But in the 1960s, there was a select few developmental psychologists that started to ask the question, do adults develop? And if so, do they have different developmental stages? And the answer is yes, adults do develop. Yes, there are different adult development stages, but most adults don't vertically develop in adulthood. Hmm. So what they found is that there are three primary stages of development as adults. 64% of all adults stay at that base level. It's essentially the same level of cognitive and emotional sophistication that they came into adulthood with. Wow. 
35% operate at that second level and only 1% gets to that highest level. Wow. And are you telling us there's no hope? That's the proactivity <laughs> part, right? Yeah. We can get there. Right? What we've learned is that as adults, our development is no longer a function of age. It's a function of effort, which requires intentionality and effort. Right. So at each of these levels, our body, our internal operating system is programmed to fulfill different needs. At that base level, our body is programmed to fulfill the needs of safety, comfort, and belonging. Now, if somebody has experienced trauma, more and more their body becomes wired to need safety, comfort, and belonging because they probably haven't had that. It's not uncommon. And this is why we see 64% of all people operate at that level. The next level up, our needs actually shift. Our internal operating system operates differently. Our needs become to stand out, advance, and get ahead. In fact, we become willing to be unsafe, uncomfortable, and not belong in order to stand out, advance, and get ahead. And what the research has found on leadership is 85% of executives operate at that second level. Hmm. And only 8% of executives operate at that third level where, where only 1% of the adult population operates at. And when we get to that level, the needs that we have there are to contribute, add value, and lift others. Hmm. We no longer are wired to stand in. That's that first level. And we're not wired to stand out. That's the second level. Now we want to add value. So the first two levels are inward, standing in or standing out. That third level is now an outward perspective. And in order to make that shift from that inward perspective to the outward perspective, foundationally, it requires healing. That's the approach that I take. I believe allows leaders to open up to, I need to be more proactive about this because I want to be that type of a leader or person. That is the essence of every conversation with men who are on the other side, who've healed from their traumas in leadership, that their essence is they're showing up to serve, to make a bigger impact and have meaningful uh, a dent in this universe in a way yeah. that they never had before. I find that with myself, I always serve, but it's deeper and more meaningful today than it ever has been. And it's guiding action. And I find that that allows leaders to elevate, allows top performers to find that one thing. Now, help me understand this. If we're looking today at that CEO, and that CEO you know, says, I'm here to shut down the good ideas of others. Where are they going to be after? Like after they spend time with you, what are they going to learn? And, and how are you going to help them manage or move through to no longer shut down, but embrace, elevate and raise others up? To me, there's kind of two steps, if you will. The first step is always awareness. Because when we shed light on this and bring it to the level of our consciousness, we're now in a position to do something about it. So even with this particular CEO, I, I had a coaching call with him just a few weeks ago, and he has made what feels like significant strides just by becoming aware. And here's why I say that just by becoming aware, because he hasn't done anything else I've asked him to do. Hmm. <laughs> but when I talk to him, he feels like a different person. So just awareness is at least half of the battle. And, and so if we could just help bring that awareness, that's a huge win. But then the kind of the next step is actually doing something about it. What we need to understand is that there's two broad forms of trauma healing or treatments. 
And they're what I call top-down approaches or bottom-up approaches. So top-down approaches is when we start with our cognitions, we move into our emotions and down into the feelings in our body. Mm-hmm. Bottom-up is when we start with the feelings in our body, move into our emotions, and then up into our cognitions. And what I found is that Top-down approaches is what I facilitate in the efforts that I do with leaders. As I start with, I bring something to their conscious awareness, we step into the emotions and down into the feelings of the body. In particular, I focus on mindsets to facilitate that process. Mm-hmm. And for most leaders, we're able to make some pretty significant shifts there. For others, but there's also some leaders that are incredibly resistant to this effort. And that's just a sign that they have more trauma. And for people who have more trauma, it's better for them to actually start with a bottom-up approach where they connect with their body, move into their emotions, and up into their head. Because what we're doing, what we're facilitating either direction is greater association and integration in our nervous system. So the bottom-up approaches are usually what's needed for people with more severe trauma. And EMDR therapy is an example, uh, one example of a bottom-up approach. And ideally, we would want to do both simultaneously, and I think that we would have better healing there. So I think the top-down approaches oftentimes don't necessarily require a therapist, although they could surely help. But I would say most bottom-up approaches, you really need a therapist to guide you in those efforts. It's great that you were able to illustrate it that way. You know, it's easy for people to rush in when they're at that bottom, you know, that overwhelming sense of emotional despair, hopelessness, worthlessness. What I'd love to learn more, and we'll talk maybe some other time about this, (laughs) because we could go on for hours. And that is, before you get to that moment, are there ways to connect it? So I think that there's a part two coming at some point, Um, Ryan, I appreciate it. So if you were to leave this conversation shedding one real absolute key element that leaders who either don't believe that they're challenged by something traumatic in their background or do, but they don't know how to connect it, what message would you give to them and what can they do right now? I believe that this is a truth about life and and our development. And that is, is that the deeper we go inward, the higher we could go in terms of our capacity to have a positive influence on the world around us. All leaders, and I would like to think most people really want to be a positive force for good within their spheres of influence. Mm. The only way we're going to elevate in our ability to do that is going deeper within ourselves. Part of that process involves greater self-awareness and it will ultimately require healing in some form or fashion. And if we could do that, then that allows us to elevate, to operate at a higher, more meaningful and more impactful level. Finding that EQ, developing our awareness and taking another step. I I think it's amazing. I've read some of your work. Obviously, I mentioned that. And Ryan, I can't wait to see You've given me the lessons in some of your blog steps, and uh, I can't wait to read the book uh, that comes out. And again, the book is titled, is it Elevate Your Impact Through Vertical Development is the tagline. Is that correct? Yeah. Success Mindsets was the first one. Yeah. Success Mindsets is the first one. The second one is the elevated leader, level up your leadership through vertical development. And then in hindsight, the elevated leader book should come first and success mindset <laughs> should become second because- the elevated leader is the why and the what, and then the mindsets is the how, but that's not how I learned it. So it's gone well so far. 
That's awesome. You know, it's like the trilogy. It's like a Star Wars trilogy. Trilogy. Don't worry about it. You don't have to put the the right order together. You just have to get the content out there. Yeah. No, but I'm excited for it to come out and anxious to see how it's received. And and I'd like to think that it could have a healing effect on people, and that's the ultimate purpose for it. Ryan, when we first spoke, I knew there was a good reason why we would be connected. I can't wait to see the journey that you've got going with the book and the impact you're going to make in leadership. I love the the triggers or the possibilities to make success happen even more, remove those limits. So I love the work that you're doing and, and I know that we're going to be back together and please come back again sometime and share uh, what you've learned when you go out there into the real world, if you will with the practical application of what your book will do for other people. Thank you. And, and the feeling is very mutual. I, I'm a cheerleader of you, Mike, and, and happy to support you in any way because both of us have, we've learned the power and the impact of healing. There's nothing better than that. And we want to help others uh, with it. So I just consider myself to be fortunate to be driving down the same lane on the freeway as you. So thank you. Awesome. And maybe I'll come back, come down and visit you in California. I can't wait to do a little bit of a book tour down there and drop in and say hello. So Ryan, Ryan Gottfredson, thank you so much. We'll put all the details in for everyone to see on the podcast. They'll be able to find out where to get your book or at least where to find out more about you and the book. Once again, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me and have an amazing, amazing day. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Really appreciate it. We're sharing the Unlimited Worth Project podcast, book, and my speaking engagements worldwide so we can normalize the narrative and encourage conversations between men who have healed and men who need to, while reducing the drama and sensationalism in the media, and seek the treatment and support they need to heal. They are worthy of love and success. When they know this, they can realize their unlimited worth. All guests appearing on the podcast have done so voluntarily. We do not require a fee from our guests. They have had the chance to express any concerns they might have and consented to their voice, image, name, and likeness in video or audio format to be used by Mike and the Unlimited Worth Project. This podcast has been edited for content and clarity prior to publication. The podcast content and likenesses are owned by Mike Skripnik Fit Family Enterprises, Inc. and the Unlimited Worth Project and our producer, Anibus Media. Redistribution without prior written consent is prohibitive. The information, suggestions, and ideas of the podcaster or any other non-accredited, unqualified guests are exactly that, opinions, and do not constitute professional advice, counsel, or prescriptive recommendations for our listening audience. If you need help, seek professional help and do it today.